Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, in this episode of Excess Returns, Matt and Jack are joined by Warren Pies and Fernando Vidal from 314 Research. They discuss 314's systematic macro process and how they are using it to analyze the current challenging economic environment. They also cover a wide range of macro topics, including the importance of duration of treasury issuance, Fed policy, the changing correlation dynamics of stocks and bonds, their unique drawdown prediction model, and their outlook for housing. Warren and Fernando bring a unique data-driven perspective to their analysis that we think investors will find very valuable as they analyze what is going on in both the markets and the economy. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with 314 Research's Warren Pye and Fernando Fidel. Welcome to Excess Returns. I'm Matt Ziegler sitting in for Justin Carboneau this week. Jack Forehand's with me as always, and we have Fernando and Warren from 314 Research. Say hello, guys. Hey, everyone. Hey, to be how here. are you doing, guys? So we're going to take it back to the beginning first. We love the work you do. If you're not following these guys on Twitter or LinkedIn or any of the places, we're going to have all those links at the end. You want to check this out because, my God, your charts and everything else are some of the best that anybody's putting out right now. And I say that looking at a lot of friggin' charts. So first off, let me just say thank you. And let me follow it up with, and did you guys both come from Ned Davis? Can we start there? Let's get some background on the table here first. Yeah, well, first off, really appreciate that. We, um, it was something that we both did come from Ned Davis Research. And when we started the company, the look and feel of the charts was a very important Thing for us. So we spent a lot of time on that and it's just, we hope to be able to tell, we write a, a report every week for clients, for instance. And I, as in previously, I was an attorney before NDR and writing is kind of my first, um, communication style in this way. But I, I think it's important to have a report in this world where everyone's so busy, where you can get like 80% of the story just from the charts. And so that's our our number one goal is to tell the majority of the story through the pictures in the report. So it's great to hear that. Um, we both did come from NDR. Uh, I was at Ned Davis Research for about uh, 10 years. Uh, started out uh, as a entry-level commodity analyst. And by the time I left, I was the head of the commodity team over there and uh during those years, I crossed paths with Fernando and worked with him, and uh, we became good friends first, and uh, really vibed very well when it came to time, came time to discussing markets, testing indicators, building model, all those things that uh, the NDR world re- involved. But um, I'll let Fernando kind of give his perspective on that. Yeah, so I started my career at Davis Research and. The charts is something that they definitely focused a lot on as well. There was an entire process before a chart could even get to a client where multiple people had to check against a set of rules, you know, how it looked. And the software there and the software we use today, like you have full control over everything you want to show down to the pixels. And that's really important to be able to customize and show things. And a picture is worth a thousand words. So, uh, like we put a lot of effort making sure that we have complete control over how we render data and ultimately it's how we present arguments. So uh, definitely an important factor. Warren's got the legal background, Fernando. Uh, what background did you have? If you say photography or arts, we'll tell where the charts <laughs> No, I, uh, I did a very, I did a finance degree and then uh, a degree in, in machine learning. Uh, so I'm very technical uh, minded. Uh, so after, after I left Ned Davis, I worked at a startup in San Francisco Bay area, uh, as a data scientist, like I took on that, that title. Cause that's what they call quants in the Bay area. Um, but yeah, I'm very technical and, uh, uh we also have another co-founder, um, and she's really good. She's got an eye for, for, uh, art, I guess you could say. And, uh, she helps make things look nice as well layout of the reports and, and things like that. So, oh but yeah. Presentation is so important in this business. As you know, 
But let's get a little bit into the framework. And, and I'm actually really excited to ask you this question, Warren. With the focus on like the commodities background and that commodity analyst, one thing that's also really different about the 314 research every time I see it is like commodities are right there in the middle between capital and labor. It's like the ultimate input and tied to everything. And I get the sense that the macro research, it's like it's always there and rooted in what you're doing. Can you speak a little bit about commodities and then maybe the macro process? Yeah, I, I mean, commodities, you know, if you're going to have a view on commodities, as you said, you, it's really a top-down asset class. If it, you know, I, I covered commodities and before that, the energy sector and material sector at Ned Davis. And these really are sectors that if you're going to cover them, you need to have a top-down macro process. And so that was where my kind of philosophy, that's where what gave rise to my macro philosophy and how I look at the world, uh, then you have to mix in. Everyone's kind of born in a certain time in their career, right? And so my career in this business started right around the GFC. And so coming out of the GFC and we saw the Fed do QE for the first time and everyone had to guess at how that was going to go and how that, what channels that worked through. And there were, I spent a lot of time going through the financial plumbing and things like that, that I think are pretty you know, prominent these days and reading up on MMT at the time and different heterodox schools of economics. And so I think in order to, in order to get the call on commodities right, you really need to have the macro base. It, they, you, you can't do one without the other, and, uh, especially when you're talking about oil, which is the commodity where I really cut my teeth. And so um, these things go hand in hand. So for many years at NDR, I really stuck to the oil world but, you know, we were building out our macro process in the background. And, and that's been one of the most fun parts of 314 is we can kind of spread our wings and show our, show our, the way we look at the world, uh, not just in the, not just how the macro impacts commodities, but just how does macro impact asset classes and go transition more to just this top down um, asset allocator versus just a commodity strategist. That's one of the things that comes out and Fernando, I'll have you weigh in on this too, is the awareness of like the plumbing and the input costs and all the things that make not just individual companies, but all of markets function cross asset class. Just curious, Fernando, in your own experience, like where's, where's your macro top down thinking come from? It's all about like looking at, at, at data, you know, with macro, you have this theory and, you know, there's all these things you need to be able to, to look at, to explore that theory and validate hypotheses. So, I mean, what we try to always do is bring it down to a quantitative analysis. And, you know, like we recently did some work on treasury issuance and, you know, you see all these charts floating around and you kind of always want to look underneath the surface and, and be able to replicate those things so that when somebody comes to you with an argument, you can say like, well, did they explore that? Well, how come they're not showing me this? And, and basically getting at, you know, this kind of data-driven quantitative approach means that you, know, you have to go and recreate that analysis before you can have an opinion on it. You have to know like all the words that they hit away um, in, in the analysis, all the details that they left out that maybe makes the picture more gray ultimately more realistic. Um, so like my perspective is every time I, I see a chart macro or otherwise, uh, I want to be able to replicate that and, and really uh, recreate it and, and validate it for myself. So I, I think that we do a lot of myth busting as part of our, our research process. And that's especially true in, in macro. You mentioned quantitative analysis, and that's one of the things that we debate a lot in the podcast, but we debate it more on the equity side of things. Like the benefits of quantitative analysis in stock selection versus discretionary management. And I'm just wondering in the macro world, how do you think about that? Like, what are the things quantitative analysis does well? And what are the things discretionary analysis does well? So with macro, I think there's a lot less history. You know, we have uh, really good data, macroeconomic data that goes back, you know, you could say a hundred years. Some people have charts going back to the, the Roman times. You've seen those charts of interest rates or whatever. But really, like, we don't have good, high-quality data um, for, for very long. And, you know, if you want to talk about recessions or business cycles, you, know, you can count on two hands <laughs> the number of cases you have to study. So I think that uh, it's important to extract as much information as you can out of those cases because that's what we have to work with. 
But I think you ultimately need a discretionary approach to, you know, put that in context and explain why things might have changed and uh, like basically understand really well just how far you can trust that data. I would say that's a good a good example of that is something I know that we'll end up talking about is the, the recent issuance of, of treasuries and the announcement of how the treasury is going to fund Q4, Q1 going forward. And like Fernando said, if we, and we've done this, if you go back and you study, you know, whether it's bond auctions and how the results of bond auctions, you try and codify whether those are quote unquote good or bad, or you study uh, funding uh, announcements and uh, coupon issuance versus bill issuance and these things, there's really nothing in the history that would suggest the moves we've seen here in the last few quarters. So kind of to your point, what we need to do is you need to understand the data, but understand the limitations and then apply that logic in that current kind of reasoning and thinking to the situation at hand and why it's unique and why we could potentially deviate from what we've seen historically. And I think that's kind of uh what we have experienced really since the, the second half of 2023 forward, where those, that data has kind of taken over markets. And it's never, if you look back in time, you would have never seen a similar instance of that. I think that that's really, really cool about the stuff that you guys are doing, because instead of like the 4,000 years of interest rates charts, and it's like, what are we going to, are we going to talk about the household like credit card uh, amount in like Jesus's household or something and infer anything about today. It's like, no, the plumbing has changed over these last few years. I know we're going to get more into that treasury issuance thing, but can you just say about like amending the data sets or reinterpreting stuff for now versus even something that would have been true like pre-COVID? I mean, yeah, it, there's, it's, it's like, where do you start? You know, you could just think of the way the stock market has evolved and from trading off of, um, you know, dig, digital trading and then, you know, high frequency trading and just the way even stocks are quoted has changed just within the last few decades. I mean, this is a, a rapidly changing world. And I, I wonder about this sometimes. Another thing that I think we could probably end up talking about is breadth thrusts. So you see a lot of signals. When I remember back when I got into the industry, like put call was a big thing and put call worked well before the 87 crash. And this is something you learn whenever you do a bunch of back tests is that if you're going to screen for an indicator, it has to catch these few precipitous declines that we have. Otherwise, it doesn't make your kind of your new back test, right? So you have to find things that worked in 1987, which happened to be like put call ratio and 200 day moving average. Uh, you have to find things that get you out of the market before the GFC, you know, and if you miss, if you don't get out of the market before those events, then your back test basically looks like crap and you throw it out. And that's kind of how the industry works. So, I, I mean, there's been so many changes. And one of the things like I would say is breadth thrusts. You know, when you see a large percentage of stocks move up together, which we've seen a lot of those recently, we saw one here in the last week. Typically, technicians really like that. That's a great signal. But we've had the new advent of uh, zero DTE options and a lot of a, a different, I'd say, market, underlying market dynamics. And we've seen many more breadth thrusts over the last year. We had a 20-year period where we didn't get as wide breadth thrust. And now we've had multiple within one year. We've had like six uh, instances where you would say multiple breadth thrusts since the end of 2021 have fired for the market. And I look at stuff like that. And yes, it's important. We're going to document it and talk about it for our clients. But I think we also need to be honest that is something changing in the market? Is there something happening under the surface that's creating, giving, uh, making these breadth thrusts more frequent and changing the nature of markets uh, themselves, um, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because that Zweig breadth thrust has been all over Twitter. And then I just like yesterday, and I didn't even expand the tweet to see what they're talking about, but somebody was like, the mother of all breadth thrusts is just triggered or something like that. And I don't know if it was the Zweig or something else, but you're right. I mean, maybe the world has changed in terms of how those work versus how they've worked historically. Yeah. And, and of course it could work. I mean, we had some earlier this year that ended up being good signals, it looks like. Um, and we had some beef last year, for instance, that ended up being kind of bad signals. I think it's more about understanding that the world changes, like you said, that you have to contextualize these things. There's no silver bullet, um, unfortunately. 
I want to get back to that issuance you mentioned, because that's been probably one of my biggest lessons of this year is I was always paying attention to what the Fed is doing. But and I didn't realize that sort of what the Treasury is doing in terms of how they're issuing across, you know, from bills to duration, like how that impacts everything. So can you just talk a little bit about how important that is in terms of what we're seeing right now? Yeah, our view. Um, I think the reason that's important is because we're the Fed's doing quantitative tightening right now. And so our just high level view on QE and QT is that QE works by removing duration from the market and QT is the opposite where it would theoretically push duration into the market. And the reason you need to study what the treasury is doing is because once the Fed starts allowing bonds to, to roll off their balance sheet and then theoretically push that duration into the market, it's now on the treasuries in, in the treasury, the balls in the treasury's court to decide what type of uh, debt they're going to issue to fill that hole. And so if you operate under the theory that you're pushing duration into the market and that's the channel that through which you're impacting policy, then you're not, if, if the treasury refuses to issue duration, they issue short-term debt instead, then they're blunting the impact of QT. So the bottom line is when we go into these QT periods, I think it's especially important to follow what the treasury is doing. I think it's why, you know, maybe it hasn't been as important historically and now you're seeing everybody look at it because we have what we're calculating now to be about a 2.5 trillion dollar funding hole next year between qt 720 billion dollars of qt and then the rest about uh roughly a, the budget deficit for the us uh so we're thinking there's going to be 2.5 trillion that they need to raise and when you need to raise that much money and the feds rolling is the feds no longer involved in the bond market the question is how are you going to fill that hole, short-term short debt or long-term debt? Uh, and so, yeah, the actions of the Treasury have become very important, and they, they actually take the baton away from the Fed at this point in the cycle and kind of dictate that last mile of monetary policy, how it's going to be implemented and, and what kind of duration is going to be entering the market or not. And it's interesting, and we always imply causation after the fact, so there probably were other factors at play, but it's interesting that, you know, in July 31st, they issued more at the long end than people thought, and the market has done very poorly since then. And then the most recent announcement was the opposite, going the other direction, and now the market's rallying. So there definitely seems to be, this, this seems to be very important for the market. Yeah, I'd say, you know, July 31st was, uh, they announced Q4 issuance, coupon issuance. And just to be clear how we, again, looking at it from a duration perspective, we're really focused on the amount of duration that the Fed is pushing it or that the Treasury is pushing into the market to fill that $2.5 trillion hole that we're estimating. Uh, and for Q4, back on July 31st, they estimated $338 billion of coupon issuance. And that was basically a almost a doubling from Q3. So that's what the market was reacting to, is that the Treasury had essentially announced they were going to double the amount of coupon issuance that they were putting into the market from Q3 to Q4. And now you fast forward to the November 2nd announcement, and they basically held that number steady going into Q1. So there was not another subsequent increase, which is kind of what the market was was looking at looking for. But as we kind of wrote in our report last week, there are trade-offs involved in that decision. So that there's it's short-term a very a positive for markets and positive for rates which is, I think, is driving everything at the moment. But um, over the long term, I think there will be consequences that we have to deal with. Is there possible knucklehead question on this, but I want to ask you about this. Is there, so like with issuance and pushing, I love the way you framed it as like removing duration from the market uh, in QE and adding duration to the market in QT. Is like the, the preferred habitat component of this, like investors who are willing to take this down because the Fed's not there? Like, is that the thing that's influencing the decision of who's willing to buy what compared to what they would normally be buying or selling? Um, if I if I understand what you're asking, I think you're saying that they're basically, you can really enumerate the big buyers for bond, um, for long-term bonds, uh, and there are not that many of them. It's you have the Fed. If the Fed's off the table, then you're left with banks, pension funds, foreigners, and then what I would call they're classified as households in our charts and stuff, but it's really leveraged hedge funds. And that's your, those are your four buyer pools. So Fed goes out of the market, 
the treasury needs to sell, like, let's say they're going to sell 1.25 trillion of coupon debt over the next 12 months. Those four pools have to pick up the pace and buy that, that debt. And when you look at it during periods of QT, the most price sensitive buyer are, is leveraged hedge funds, unsurprisingly. And so you need to have yields go high enough, get that group come in here and, and fill the gap, if that's what you mean. Because really, when you look across the other buyers, they're kind of tapped out at this point. Banks aren't buying, foreigners are stepping away. Um, you've had, and when you look back, some other analysis that Fernando has, has done is to look at uh, buying patterns during QE and QT. And it's common to see these pools of buyers step away when the Fed exits the market in QT. Even though there aren't that many episodes to study, that's what we see typically. So it all roads kind of point back to that price sensitive buyer in the hedge fund community to pick up the slack. Uh, and, and that's why I think we had to have yields go up to a certain, to, you know, to 5%, pull those buyers in. And then the treasury had to come back and the treasury basically said, look, we're, um, if you read their, the TBAC's letter to the treasury, they basically said, we are nervous that if we hit the market with more supply than this, that they're not going to take it down. So they held it constant. And that's what we've seen this relief rally that's, that's fed uh, 10 year rates going down 50 basis points and small caps rally large in uh, stocks in general rally. Do you have anything uh, that I miss anything, Fernando, from our, our work on that? No, I think that's, that's a, a good summary. Like up until last week, I think, you know, uh, when the new announcement came out, like the market, you know, we got up to 5% on the 10 year. Because there was this fear that the treasury was actually going to try to keep bills as a percent of all debt outstanding between 15 and 20 percent. And they explicitly said, we're going to let that go much higher. So the government will be raising, you know, percent of short term debt as a percent of the whole uh, more than what they said was the target. So now we kind of know, like, OK, when the market's scared about that level of coupon issuance, you know, this is where rates can get to. And once they flipped that card and said, no, we're cool with, uh, with letting bills outstanding grow you know, into the mid twenties or based, based on some of our modeling, potentially even higher then you get this, this, uh, uh, temporary, uh, easing of, of, uh, as the market realizes, okay, we're not going to get this huge mountain of coupon debt next year. So, um, pretty unique to see a card get flipped and the market react so strongly. But I think that's, you know, that's what was going to happen. If you model things out, staying below 20% would take a lot of coupon issuance. And once that's off the table, you can get uh, some release, relief there. You use the word temporary there. Are we really just kicking the can down the road? I mean, obviously the debt problem is not going away because they're issuing more short-term debt. I mean, is this just kind of a temporary reprieve and then this becomes a more major problem down the road? Yeah, well, there's no escaping it except for the, unless the Fed were to stop doing QT. So if we gave the treasury, I'd say the most charitable interpretation of the facts in, in their, in the, how they're managing the fiscal side, you know, their job is just to manage how to issue debt. And it's really all to the lawmakers and how they've, they've put us in this situation, but they're looking at a two and a half trillion dollar hole they have to fund. And let's say they fund it 50, 50 bills and coupons for the next year. And then they do that again. Our work suggests that bills outstanding drifts up to like, you know, 28% at that point, 28, 29%, um, which is high, but it's not totally unprecedented. You know, we've, we've had bills outstanding that high before. So at that point in time, you looking at it as glass half full, maybe the Fed stops QT. So that immediately takes 720 off the table. And then the treasury could continue with their steady state issuance, which let's say it's between 1.2 and 1.4 trillion of coupon debt every year. And that would immediately begin exerting force on that bill's outstanding number to come back to like that 20% level. So if you take a really long-term perspective, like three or four years, and you assume no recession and everything goes well, I could under, I could see a, there is a path for us to issue this debt, cons uh, absorb the debt by the market, and then get us back to more of a baseline on bills outstanding, but that requires everything kind of going right. When you, when you think about what drives long rates, like one of the things I've learned in, in my career in stock market, but also this year is you've got kind of a couple of things, I think, driving long rates. You know, I always would think like, let's look at inflation, let's look at economic growth, 
let's see what's going on. And that kind of helps me figure out what's going on in the bond market. But then it's more base level. You've just got supply and demand. You've got the government is issuing a ton of debt. Someone's got to buy that debt. Like that's going to affect rates. So like, how do you think about that? Like the push and pull between both of those things? Because I could see a scenario where inflation comes down, economic growth comes down, but rates stay high just because a bunch of debt's got to be issued. I mean, is that a, the right way to look at it? Yeah, I think that um, supply matters. I think that's, gosh, that's such a debate out in the market right now because some like really traditional bond guys will argue that, you know, some, there's no evidence that supply matters, that the market is so deep, it's going to take this debt down and it, it's all fundamentals. And there was a big debate coming into this back. Like, you know, one side basically said, look, yields have shot higher after the July 31st to October, August 2nd announcement of more issuance. So that's evidence that issuance is driving rates higher uh, and demand is falling off from these pools of buyers that I'm mentioning. You have another school of thought who said, no, 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 you see Q3 GDP growth. It's we're skyrocketing. It's like 5% Q3 GDP growth. Look at Atlanta Fed GDP now. Uh, the economy's ripping. Rates are moving higher because of growth. Well, I think that oddly enough, I think the TBAC kind of settled that debate with the TBAC being the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee, which is a committee that advises the Treasury Secretary on how to issue debt. They write her a letter every quarter when they when they do these uh, QRAs. And in that letter this quarter, they said they were charged with determining what was causing the rise in rates. And it's not, they said it is not growth. It's a it's the fall in demand from those tr those traditional buyer pools. And another way of saying that is that there's in, increased uncertainty on um, uh, for, for future demand. And that's in bond lingo, a higher term premium that we're seeing in long-term debt. And so when you listen to the, the government itself, they're saying that the rise in yields has been more attributed to the supply demand factors that you mentioned versus your traditional Fed policy and growth stuff, which I think is the traditional framework we're looking at bonds. This is probably why we've seen so many traditional fixed income guys get caught off sides this year. We've had so many, I, I, I'd be hard pressed to see a traditional big bank fixed income person who called for rates to do what they did this year. There, it just hasn't, I haven't seen one. They, they're almost all bullish, even at like 4%. And would that also, would the logical conclusion from that be like, when we do get our eventual recession, rates probably aren't going to come down as much as we think they are because the supply is still there? Absolutely. That's the problem. That's the the problem that I think we really, if we get a recession, so we, if we, the, the decision that the Treasury made, it saves the day for now. But if we were to get that recession, when you look at your traditional recession, you end up with an, an additional uh, deficits blowout by even in a mild recession, like three to 4% of GDP. So let's say another trillion dollars of um of of uh, of deficit financing in the event of a recession, so we're at a two point five trillion dollar hole that could easily become three point five or four trillion dollars in a recession scenario. And generally, this bills outstanding question. This is this bills outstanding jumps during a recession because it's the easiest way for the government to tap short term debt markets is to fund through bills. So when that recessionary deficit blows out. They pour money into the bills market. And then once the recession goes away and the, the tax receipts rise, they're able to kind of correct things. But we're going into the recession in kind of an offsides position as a as a as a society at this point. And so it absolutely um, it does raise a lot of questions on on how yields will behave when we go into a recession. Will they come down? Will they come down like they're, you know, according to the traditional script uh, in how will the government, where, where will the government go within the debt market in that, in that uh, scenario? Uh, those are all, I think, very fair questions to ask. And if I had to guess, I'd say you're right that yields are not going to come down as fast in a mild recession. We would need a, a more serious recession, obviously. I feel like when I, when I look at the macroeconomy, I always tend to say like, oh, things are much more uncertain than usual. And, but I feel like now that might also be true. Like, it seems like, you know, I, I follow a lot of guys on Twitter and it seems like you've got the guys in the camp that think inflation's coming back. That's going to be our biggest problem. You've got people who think a recession is coming very soon. And then you've got your soft landing people who think we're going to thread the needle. I'm just wondering if you guys could talk about within your framework, how are you seeing where we are right now? Um, I'll go, I'll, I think we're late cycle. 
And Fernando, you can, if I miss anything, just jump on in and tell me what I'm missing. But I think we're late cycle and predicting a recession, I think is one of the hardest things you can do in this world, in this macro world we're in. We have our framework and how we, we look at it. And our best guess is that we end the next step in this late cycle process as a hard landing versus soft landing. But there is a, there is a path to a soft landing. So the um, uncertainty is definitely high. I mean, we just came off a pandemic where we spent, we added basically 50% to the federal uh, deficit. We've got, um, uh, we've had inflation for the first time in basically 25 years re-entered into the equation. We haven't had to worry about that as investors. And so it makes sense that uncertainty is going to be significantly higher at this stage uh, of the game. You, you had a really good note you sent us um, in, in preparation for this about this idea that stocks and bonds have been negatively correlated for a really long time. And we might be shifting to another really long time where maybe that's not true anymore. So I don't know, Fernando, if you may take this one. Do you, what, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Like, do you think we're entering a, a period here where maybe we're going to see positive correlation from stocks and bonds, like for an extended period of time? Yeah, it's definitely something that is at like the core of uh, like our approach to building portfolios that include things like uh, commodities and managed futures and all these alternatives, because you're not getting this kind of um, dividend where you just have this negative correlation between stocks and bonds. So we did some work that I thought was interesting that could weigh into this kind of bond yield argument. But basically when rates are, uh, when correlations between stocks and bonds are positive, it leads to a significant um, step down in the amount of equities that you can justify um, to reach a certain target of volatility. So like a lot of asset managers are going to look and say, I can't justify this uh, high of an allocation to equities when bonds have these kinds of yields. And, uh, you know, when when stocks and bonds are moving together, stocks are just far too volatile compared to bonds. And I need to step down my uh, my allocation to stocks because just because of this correlation change. So it leads to a lot of changes in the way people construct portfolios. Uh, you have to rethink you know, a lot of strategies about using leverage to exploit this negative correlation and, and boost returns and, and layer on alternatives. That comes into question when the benefits of this negative correlation disappear. And ultimately, it's an incrementally positive thing for the lower volatility asset, which is bonds. Do you guys see, like we see that we deal more with retail clients and now you deal with more institutional clients, but one of the challenges is, you know, when you've seen something for 25 years consistently, it takes you a really long time to recognize that something else might be happening. So you, you have this tendency of people to say, this is, we're going to change back to the negative correlated environment. You know, it, it just, it's just like a natural thing. I mean, do you, do you see that with your clients as well? I think it's out there, uh, you know, and it's weird how. Every time, what what I've noticed, so this started out as a theory of ours when we started the company was like, well, one of the first things we did was we built a multi-asset allocation model because our idea was that the next 25 years aren't going to look like the last 25 years and you need alternatives and you need a better mousetrap because quite honestly, 60-40s kick butt from you know 1998 to 2021 and there's really no, if that's going to be the next 25 years, then we should all kind of pack it up and go home and just let the 60-40 continue to do its its magic, work its magic, honestly. Um, but I don't see that happening. That was a theory when we started the company. And now I think that theory is really starting to be proven out with this increase in, in uh, correlation between 60-40 or between stocks and bonds. But the thing I've noticed to kind of the entrenched mindset of clients is that the uh, it, like we had a good beginning of the year to 60-40 because stocks and bonds rallied together at really the early part of the year. And we've seen it again here in the last week where stocks and bonds rally together. And what I hear is, oh, what happened to 60-40 is dead. You know, I, I hear not, really don't hear from clients, hear it more out in the Twitterverse, for instance. What happened to 60-40 is dead, guys. It's, it's rallying right now. And my response to that is this is a very unhealthy rally for 60-40. You're, you're basically getting an equity rally that's dependent on rates going lower. So you're by definition getting a, 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 a rally where stocks and bonds are correlated. Uh, and that's so your volatility on 60-40 in this regime is going to be like Fernando said, our, our, 
our studies suggest it's a two and a half percent annual increase uh, based on current correlations versus the past 25 year correlations. You should expect your max drawdown to increase by like 10 percent, all else equal on your 60, 40 portfolio. So when stocks and bonds start moving together, it's not something to celebrate, even though the returns might feel good in the short term. It's actually setting you up for a really difficult path to travel um, for 60-40. So I, I see periods like this actually prove our thesis right, and they become misinterpreted by, by the um, kind of the, the Wall Street crowd, I would say. I don't want to denigrate anyone, but that's, the, uh, that's what I notice. It's a misinterpretation of a good uh, rally in 60-40 here. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to reiterate what Warren just said. So. You know, if you're selling 60-40 as an advisor, you know, in a positive correlation environment, you know, that's a far riskier portfolio for somebody. You know, it has a far higher risk of shortfall and all the other risk things that are important when picking something. So it, it matters tremendously, uh, you know, that, that even a risk of the correlations uh, turning positive. And, you know, we've written a, a lot about the reasons for that, um, you know, the specter of inflation is one of them. Warren can talk about the energy side, um, but uh, it's definitely something that changes changes things significantly. Fernando, and- what was the stat before we go on? I the we did it. If you just take so just to give everyone in the audience, like we've done so much work on this, but if you take the correlation between stocks and bonds pre nineteen ninety eight, before the Asian financial crisis, before China entered the WTO. Before the shale revolution, before all these disinflationary things happened, the correlation between stocks and bonds from 1960 to 1997 was positive 0.4. From 1998 to 2021, it was negative 0.3. If you keep the return assumptions for your stock and bond portfolios exactly the same and hold everything else constant and just move the correlation between stocks and bonds... And Fernando can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it takes your sharp ratio on the 60-40, the implied sharp ratio on that portfolio down from like 0.75 to 0.5. Is that, does that ring a bell, Fernando? Is that what, what the numbers were? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. You know, another way to look at it is like if you wanted the volatility of the historical 60-40 in the positive correlation regime, you would need a, like a 50-50 portfolio split to achieve that same amount of volatility in the new regime. So, I mean, that's, it's a huge shift, um, uh, you know, when you lose that, that negative correlation dividend. So either you say like, yeah, okay, 60-40, you're just going to have to accept more risk. Or it's like, well, if you wanted that risk level, now you have to have 50-50 to achieve it. Yeah. And, and, not, and not to keep going, but when you go back to that T-back letter we talked about, the government itself said one of the reasons why we've seen term premium rise and bond sell off here recently is because stocks and bonds are moving together. So these things feed off of each other. Can you just, like the 60-40 is dead, is dead, is dead, I think is the level we just got to. Can you talk about that just for one more second, the relation to the T-back letter and the stock bond correlation? Because it's it still feels like there always has to be that that entity who's there to buy the buy the issued debt, buy buy this stuff. So like th- these things are all connected. This is all feeding each other in the environment that we're in, and that has dramatic implications playing forward. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, number one is if you look at like household allocations and pension allocations, households and pensions are historically way overweight equities. So, you know, there is a bit of a discrete pool of capital here that's going to have to come in and, and take that debt down, for instance, what we're talking about. And so one of the big pools of capital that's going to have to rotate, uh, in our opinion, is pension funds. And once you get yields on like the 10-year getting to 5%, you, you will start seeing pension funds come in and what they would call immunize their obligations. And so locking in yields that basically... Uh, uh, take care of their future obligations without taking the risk on the equity side. And obviously, to do that, you have to sell some of your equity portfolio to enter into the bond market. And and so, yeah, I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse on the 60-40 side, but that's the problem when inflation comes back 
and it drives up yields and it drives up the correlation between stocks and bonds, these things feed on each other. And that's why understanding why in these kind of nasty environments that rates are driving everything, starting at the rates market is really important because the stock rallies are going to roll, roll off of rates and rates are the things that can can kill that stock rally as well as it tracks capital from those pools like pensions and, and hedge funds. You look at a chart of you know, pension allocation to equities over a long period of time, it's just up and to the right, you know, more and more and more and more equities. And this is one of those things that there is fundamental underlying reason why if you just project it out by the end of 2100, it'll be 100%. It's not going to be like that. There's a reason, there's a limit to, to it. And I think we're starting to see that here. We see that with clients. We do a decent amount of like pension smaller pension. We're not doing like trillions of dollars of pensions here, but that was a huge change coming in and through this year, taking a lot of those pension allocations and just jettisoning the stock exposure because we don't need it. If you have a smaller pension plan or like a small company pension, you just need T-bills right now to immunize. So it's just asset liability matching. And you couldn't do that for the last 10 years. Exactly. It's the environment that's changed. That's why Zerf yeah. caused them to reach for equities. That was the, you know, the, so they were just reacting to the environment in the same way they'll, they'll respond to yield. There's no, it doesn't make any sense to have the average pension at like 75%, 80%, whatever it is right now, equity allocation with, uh, if the 10 year is going to stay between four and a half and 5%, even if that's just where we top out. Can you guys talk a little bit about what you think the Fed's going to do going forward here. I mean, it seems like they're sort of trying to play both sides of it right now. They're, they've paused a little bit, but they're also saying, you know, they're indicating that they, they will raise more if they have to. The market's pricing in cuts next year. What do you think is likely to happen going forward with the Fed? Our view is that the Fed is on pause. We've, we've had that for a bit now. Uh, and I think that's going to be the case. It's, I would say that the plan is for a sustained pause. The, the, the futures market has the has cuts uh, by the midpoint of next year, and if you follow the traditional uh, hiking and uh, Fed cycle, then you know the pause is like six to eight months. So that would make some sense. Um, I don't think the Fed cuts without uh, a more deterioration in the labor market, and so at this moment in time, everything we really go back to the housing market for our our, our kind of macro point of truth. And when we look at the housing jobs, construction jobs in particular, which is what we think is a leading indicator for the economy, it hasn't cracked yet. So I think that those cuts that are priced in for like May and June of next year and the, the midpoint of next year, it's a little too ambitious at this stage. Now, if the data deteriorates, the Fed cuts, but um, I don't, ex the number one thing is I don't expect the Fed to cut preemptively, which is what we kind of need for a soft landing. I think the soft landing crowd is counting on the Fed cutting, the economy staying robust, um, and just kind of threading the needle on all these things. I, I, I don't think the Fed's going to do that because it risks reaccelerating inflation if they cut too early, reigniting the housing market, which has been really the biggest source of inflation this cycle. Um, and so uh, I take the over on where the market is pricing Fed cuts at this moment in time. Have you guys done any work around what it means when the Fed pauses raising rates for the stock market? I mean, people on the surface would say, oh, that's really good for the stock market. They've stopped raising rates. Do you, do you know, has that been historically true? Every case they paused except for 2000 pause, the stock market rallied. And so usually it is. Um, in every case until this recent pause, the bond market has rallied on a Fed pause as well. So um, usually, if you go by that, the historic playbook, and we go back to 1978 with our analysis on these, because I really Fed policy was pretty different if you go too much beyond that. Um, but th that's the traditional playbook. Uh, now, we had a chart that we looked at uh, how the equity market is performed around this cycle and then your traditional cycle. So the traditional playbook is for the stock market to sell off for the first, for the a few months leading into the last hike. And then for the Fed to pause really on the back of some stock market weakness. And that ignites a little mini rally in the S&P 500. And so that's your typical pattern. 
in this time around, what we saw was a stock rally really rip into that July 31st announcement date that QRA, which also ended up being your last Fed hike date. You know, it's kind of confusing matters. And then we saw stocks peak there and decline during this pause phase. So interestingly, we've been on uh, exactly the opposite of the traditional script, just as a, to, as a side note. But yes, if you follow the traditional script, it should be positive for stocks. I just had one more area I wanted to ask you about before I hand it back to Matt. Housing, you mentioned housing before. Housing has probably been the most surprising thing for me. Like if you told me 8% mortgage rates, I would have told you 2008 or something in the housing market. And I, I totally missed the supply thing. I totally missed the idea that if I've got a 3% mortgage, I'm just going to sit in my house. There's going to be no supply. But it also doesn't seem like that's sustainable going forward. So I'm just wondering, like, could you talk a little bit about your outlook for housing, given all the dynamics we're dealing with? Yeah. Um, Fernando, you want to you wanted get in here and talk about housing for a minute? I mean, we have a, a model payrolls in, in residential construction as a function of the pipeline from building a house um, to, to selling it. Um, and basically, if you want to look at a, a good recession timing indicator, you look at, you look for like a, about an 8% drop in residential construction payrolls. And, you know, all the modeling that we have done has shown that, you know, right now the, the big bottleneck is the time to build a house has dramatically risen and like significantly like double or even like close to triple the amount of time it was pre-COVID. And in our assumptions, you know, this would have uh, like when supply chain concerns get figured out and everything, that'll come down and we'll see a lot more completions. And without housing starts, you know, really ramping up, which they have not, like housing starts in multifamily are, are holding in okay. Single families way off of its peak. So on net, you know, it's kind of muddling along. Um, but, you know, without that going higher, uh, payrolls should fall. And what we've seen is that um, payrolls are actually holding it okay. And the time to build a house is not really significantly falling. Um, so you know, this this could be for a lot of reasons, but, you know, companies don't want to lay people off yet. You know, there's still hope. You know, a lot of people holding their breath uh, that rates are going to fall and everything will be okay. Um, but but really, that's the dynamic right now. Um, time to build is, has not come down. A lot of people still have those jobs, and we don't see the kind of deterioration in payrolls you need for, for a recession. This is probably a dumb question, but I got this so wrong on the front end that I want to ask it on the back end. Like, Is it possible that rates going down would actually be bad for the housing market because it would unlock supply kind of in the reverse of what happened before? It would be potentially bad in in so far as prices could drop more and you get more supply onto the market and that feeds some kind of a housing price correction that we haven't had so far. So yeah, I, really the big, um, with rates where we're at right now though, and I'd say the real reason we've been locked up at this point in time is because the national builders, the publicly traded builders control 50% of houses. They build 50% of new houses in the United States of America. And so those those builders are still in great shape. You know, you've seen their stock prices rally this year and they're able to come in there and buy down mortgage rates, which basically gives them a competitive advantage over everybody else in the market. If you're a, pro, a small builder or obviously an existing home seller, you, you know, they're able to come in here and build, buy your mortgage down from seven and a half to five and a half percent and make the math work just as an incentive, basically, to the end buyer. Um, and... As you get mortgage, our work is basically shown that as mortgage rates get to 8% and above, that buy-down math starts to cool down. They're no longer able to make it work because it really is just dollars. It's all fungible, really. It's just how much, does it, how much, how big of a margin do they have in each house to be able to continue with that game. Uh, and up, once you get above 8%, there is a limit to that game. And those big national uh, builders ultimately have to... Um, slow down their construction and that's kind of i think the would be the last uh last uh leg to the stool to knock out and get us into a, a real housing slowdown well that's certainly something we're all watching let's let's transition a little bit to because points like that are what you're doing when you're writing this stuff and sharing it with clients uh, another thing that comes from your website from your research is you've got this tool for the likelihood of 10% declines, and you've written about this quite a bit. Uh, 
in the month ahead. Can you just talk about what that is and how you see clients using that? Yeah, so this is a you know drawdown risk model is what we call it, and you know, we have all these studies and all these indicators that you know, look at risks in the market. And what this tool tries to do is say, you know, it's, it's basically this um, synthesis of dozens of different indicators that that we see historically empirically bias the odds, you know, in favor of uh, uh, a 10% or greater drawdown. So it's a very explicit rule. And then we basically took all these things that we find add value and differentiating those times, and put this into a machine learning model that spits out a probability of a decline. And then on top of that, you know, we have this kind of thresholds, you know, 15% probability to us is, is elevated and 20% is extremely elevated. So um, it's done a pretty good job or, um, since we put it out in identifying, um, you know, kind of periods where we've had subsequent uh, breakdowns in the market. But it's a good example of like how we use machine learning to synthesize a bunch of underlying indicators that we have an intuitive understanding for. So it's not really a black box. Um, there's all these indicators that we've, they're hard won insights into, you know, how to differentiate downside risk versus upside. And they're all synthesized into this one quantifiable number on the output um, that we use as a, as a risk gauge, essentially. In laying, in laying a framework like that out to an investment committee or a, or a client, what are you telling them to do with that information? So there's a 20% chance of a 10% decline in the S&P. So what? What are you saying to help them with their process? Well, I mean, number one, I contextualize the, the model for them, which is uh, it's you have to think of that model in particular as like the most risk averse an investor. It's only thinking of downside, you know, like the whole game there is to model the risk of potential downside. And anyone who's just been in markets understands that when volatility expands, upside potential expands alongside downside potential. So uh, the model is is really only focused on that downside. You have to keep that that in mind, number one. And then it goes kind of to each individual client's uh, own mandate and how they would potentially implement it. I mean, a lot of clients can't just get out of the market uh, 100%. So that would be um, kind of a dramatic reaction, especially when you say it's a 20% probability. And a lot of times declines beget declines. So for instance, we got uh, this model triggered back on October 12th, for instance, the S&P 500 was at 4350 and then we got all the way down to 4100 and it was still on high risk but maybe that's not the right time to de-risk because we've already had some and you have to remember the risk averse investor mentality so another way to potentially um utilize it that we've used in our models is to enter a cash position that's um that that equals the probability of a drawdown so if the prob drawdown probability forward drawdown probability hits like 25% then you enter a 25% cash position. That's another suggestion when our clients come to us and say, how do we use this? Like, And we've modeled that in different things. And and just to give you a rule of thumb, any, in anything below 20%, we'd say stay fully invested. You go above 20%, enter that into a cash position in the model. Um, so those are a couple examples. But honestly, it would come down to that individual client's mandate and just in making sure first and foremost, they understand the limitations just of any model and that one in particular. I think it's important to highlight this just because it's, that's a difference for 314 in between somebody who's just writing and publishing research and somebody who's actually engaging to translate the research into what's actionable and what's sensible to your individual mandate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a difference between an institutional uh, research shop and like a newsletter, you know, and I, I, I definitely think Fernando and I, our background, our personalities, uh, we're way more suited for kind of the consulting and institutional type of um, business, which, you know, you have a, you have your set of tools, you have your thoughts, your intel, your analytics, and each client comes to you and they have to be able to, you know, maybe take that in and, uh, with our help, form it to their their own outcomes. It's not going to be the the retail clients. We've had some individuals come to us, and it's they're usually looking for that um, 
magic formula or like whatever, you know, the, the silver bullet, you know, just feed me a list of tickers every day that only go up. And then um, their, their expectations are really unrealistic. Uh, so it's, it's really not our, our target market. So I want to give you guys the, our standard closing question here. And Fernando, I'm going to ask you first, if, if you could impart one piece of wisdom, if you could teach one lesson to the average investor, what one piece would you want them to know? I think, uh, get enough mastery over data analysis to be able to do some myth busting and treat everything that you see, uh, out there with, uh, a pinch of salt <laughs> and, and really try to validate things. And also like, if anything ever seems obvious in investing, probably not true. <laughs> like if anything, like, so such a clear cut distinction that it's like, obviously I should be all in. Definitely not the case. Um, and, and in fact, like that feeling should give you worries. So a deep, deep skepticism is probably the biggest lesson I can, I can impart. And that's from doing a lot of analyses and trying to replicate a lot of things and, um, seeing, you know, how stories take a lot of skeletons in the closet to, to, to make compelling and, and, uh, juicy. So compelling and juicy. It's that quote about the crystal ball and learning to eat shards of glass if that's how you want to live, right? Yeah, a good one. Warren, what about you? You can impart one piece of wisdom. What would it be? I mean, to the average investor, which would, would be like your guy in the, the street, maybe. Uh, I, I think if you do this, if you don't do this, like with, with a 100% full-time job and you need to have the right skills, and you need to have the right tools, uh, meaning that you better be able to manipulate data, you better be able to understand the data, and spend a lot of time, um, uh, even in the gray areas, that, that you just really probably should hand the keys over to somebody else who's better able to do that stuff. Because it, it's not an easy game. I see so many people who... Uh, I had a, a guy one time, I'm going to not describe too much about him, but he had made a lot of money in another industry, a lot of money. He was very successful. And he um, actually asked me to run his money and his expectations were to beat the market by, um, like the hurdle rate was 15% above the S&P 500 um, every year or something like that. And he had just started out. And um, I had a pretty serious conversation with him that this is an unrealistic goal and, and why. And so... That's kind of the the thing I see more most often with, I'd say, the average investor is just a lack of an appreciation for how hard this game is and that there's a lot of really, really, really smart people grinding at this stuff every single day. And so if you're not, if you don't love it, if you don't love it, if you don't like kind of eat it and sleep it, then best to let somebody else to do it. Wise, wise words. Why don't you tell everybody, and we'll put all the links down below in the show notes and comments here. Tell everybody where to find you. Tell them where to follow along. I'm plugging for you. Twitter, LinkedIn, find these guys there. See the charts that they share of nothing else. But how do people find you? Sign up. Who do you want to reach out? Yeah, if you are an uh, institutional investor, put your name, your information into our website, 314research.com. That's the number three and then everything else spelled out. And we will send you some sample research. Um and find out if, ask a few questions and, and, and find out if you're a good fit for our, our work. Uh, if you don't want to go that far, you can always call me at Warren Pies on Twitter or your company is at 3F underscore research. Uh, Fernando, what's your Twitter handle? Fernavid, F-E-R-N-A-V-I-D. Excellent. And are you guys are both posting stuff on LinkedIn now or the firm is too, I think I've seen? I put stuff on LinkedIn every once in a while. I, I try not to let that um, forget about uh, LinkedIn. So yeah, I try and stay more positive on LinkedIn. That's I think the rule over there, right? <laughs> you don't want to plug your TikTok or anything, do you? Sure. Right, 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 right. It's all bullish on LinkedIn and bearish on Twitter. Just no <laughs> which is an old like newsletter tactic, right? <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so much. I I want to drive home this point, Fernando. I love that idea of you know mastering the myth busting. I think that that's amazing and sound advice that I 
I don't want to forget. I'll embrace that skepticism. Warren, I got to call you out on the right tools thing, though. It sounds a lot like uh, being handy with the steel and earning your keep to actually learn your way around this. So <laughs> I'm going to end this with, you know, m move over Nate Dog and Warren G. It's uh, Fernand Dog and Warren P from 314. Thanks for joining us, guys. Very clever, man. Great being here. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.